The Gist is brought to you by SAP HANA. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future, and reimagine the way they do business. Run SAP and run simple. And by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'll be following a team of elite cryptographers as they decode a highly classified radio transmission. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. The Message on iTunes. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, October 9th, 2015. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pasca. And your Nobel Peace Prize goes to... The Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet. Oh, wait, no, no, no. I'm reading from the afternoon speaker schedule at Ohm Manor Ashram and Bakery. After that, there'll be the inner dialogue pantomime players. No, wait, I was right. It is the Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet, which reminds us Tunisia was the winner in the Arab Spring. Interesting history, the Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet, originally emphasizing acoustic dialogue and group harmonies. They performed extensively and recorded albums, including a double-sided disc of labor agreements. They recorded with Phil Spector, but were booed extensively when they went electric at a seamstress convention. Once Crosby, Stills, Nash, and the Tunisian Confederation of Industry, they dropped David Crosby. They reformed as Peter Paul and the Tunisian Order of Lawyers, but that ran into legal trouble, and now we know them as the Tunisian the Tunisian National Dialogue Quartet. Congratulations, guys and women, all of you. There's actually more than four people in the quartet. The quartet represents many unions and labor groups and guilds. A bunch of guilds won the Nobel Prize. How awesome is that? Congratulations, you won the Nobel Prize. And I also hear you're sitting in with two chains on his next LP. On the show today, you know what nation needs some dialogue? It's this nation, USA, USA. The position of Speaker of the House has become about as popular as Al-Qaeda number three, drummer for Spinal Tap, black guy in a Michael Bay movie. I'll weigh in. I'll help the Republicans. In fact, I'll give them a little empathy. But first, a national treasure. In fact, the national poet. It's the Poet Laureate of the United States. SAP HANA helps the world's best companies get the answers they need to become more agile, develop new streams of revenue, predict the future, and reimagine the way they do business. Run SAP and run simple. Visit sap.com slash saphana to learn more. Juan Felipe Herrera is the Poet Laureate of the United States. Thank you for coming in. Thank you so much. I really, uh, I'm honored. Thank uh, you. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So yes. uh, there was a 2008 profile of you in the New York Times, but I have to say that's the only time I've ever seen you without a hat. Your Twitter page has a hat. Your many book jackets have a hat. Tell me about your hat for a lot. There are a couple different kinds of hats. Some are straw, some are uh, caps. <laughs> How do hats help, help the poetry? Well, I, I I don't know if uh, if uh, if caps are still going. I'm trying to keep the the cap uh, histories alive because mm-hmm. uh, apparently everything's a hat these days. Well, I just have this idea that you could do. You know, <laughs> each of your various kinds of hats can have poem series about them based on them from their perspective. There's a lot of ways to go with this hat thing. Oh, you know that's that's a good idea. You know that's a good idea. You know we can go. Uh, 
We can do the hats of the cranium at midnight also. Yeah, I like that. The hats of the cranium yeah. at midnight. Yeah, the, my midnight cranium gets really icy. <laughs> and there's a lot of icicles that start growing off my head. And honestly, honestly, I, I wear caps uh, when I go to sleep too. I wear these big beanies, different colors. Uh, some stretch over my face. Some go, come all the way down my nose. Are any of them like the wee willy winky cap? The uh, the one of your maybe a nineteenth century cloth cap that hangs down limply at the side? I, I like that. You know, I used to wear those in the sixties in San Francisco. Those those. Uh, those kind of hats, and uh, uh, I kind of wear like Rasta hats mm -hmm. uh, at night, and triple colored hats, Jamaican looking like hats, caps. My skull, for some reason, it does get cold, so I want to keep it at you know it at you know nice nice level. 109 degrees around there it keeps me warm. <laughs> you know, I re I've read a lot of your poems and a few of your collections, and it seems like you have a lot of empathy for the underdog and the voiceless. Mm. So it kind of surprises me that you'd be a fan of Death Wish and Bronson, although you have there's a lot of vigor in your poems, too, and a lot of lashing out. Oh, thank you. You know, uh, underdog, you know, that that's kind of where I come from, you know, underdog land. Uh, you know, living uh, on the outskirts of the outskirts, outskirts of cities, like on the underside of the freeway before the city begins. Uh, I've lived in those places in little kind of sanded down, uh, circular, bald desert spots where trailers kind of find a place to settle. And then all of a sudden you have a little trailer village. Uh, I lived in those places. And that's where you take baths in these big tin buckets in the middle of the yard. And that's where the iceman comes and drops off a big chunk of ice. And that's where you grab a turkey, chase it down, and chop its head off with a hatchet. Yeah, I grew up in some of those places. And, you know, really uh, kind of getting down a little little deeper. Uh, I grew up as a farm worker child. As you can imagine, it's, it's a different place to, to come from than from the uh, core of the city or from the center of the city. And I want all of us to... Uh, to have all the ample resources and to have uh, uh, all the ample uh, recognitions and to have all our histories come out into the light. So that that's true. So what do you make of this moment where on the one hand we have, for instance, the first Chicano Poet Laureate of the United States, but uh, uh, the son of laborers, uh, uh, are you first generation? Yeah, I'm first yeah. generation. First, yes. ge first generation uh, American immigrant in your place, uh, getting the laurels that a laureate deserves. Yet on the other hand, at this very moment, the leading candidate of one of the two major parties says that Mexicans are rapists. And it's not just that an idiot says that, it, that it resonates. This very message resonates more than others. I guess it could mean a lot of things, including that America contains multitudes. But what do you make of it? Well, you know, it's, it's not the first time. You know, it's not the first time people say that, whether they're in uh, high places, middle places, or low places. I want to spend my time, and I encourage everyone to spend their time in uh, creative and productive work, as opposed to taking time out to come up with, uh, you know, responses where you have to devote a lot of energy to negative thoughts. The kind of poet you are, you have probably written from the first-person perspective of a thousand characters, and I don't know how many poems you've written that haven't gone anywhere besides your desk drawer. I mean... Is it more fun or more challenging to write from the perspective of someone that you agree with or empathize with? Because I was thinking, what if you had to write in the perspective of someone who's a Trump supporter or someone who says, you know, it's the it's the immigrants who are taking our jobs? How would you approach that? Oh, I think that's great. No, I think that's a great idea. And uh, it brings something out of you. You know, it's not it's it's OK to uh, always develop characters that are kind of agreeable mm. to the writer, to to me or to you, to all of us. It's kind of kind of an easy way to go. 
it's it's uh, really good to uh, create characters or voices or uh, or stanzas or certain poems that uh, come out of a place where you would never write from <laughs> that point of view. And uh, I, I want to do that, and I enjoy doing that. And uh, Senegal Taxi, a poem that I, uh, a set of poems that I wrote from the point of view of various characters that had to do with the massacres in Darfur and Sudan, and uh, not too many years ago, uh, I said, you know what? Uh, not only am I going to write from the point of view of the children that were massacred and their mother and father, but I'm going to write from the point of view of the Janjaweed, the actual paramilitary. And I'm, not gonna write, I'm also going to write from the point of view of the Kalashnikov AK-47. I want to see what happens there, and from the point of view of the fly and the ants, let's see. If I can, you know, get a, wi- a wider lens and perhaps a, a more, um, you know, a, a ghastly set of terms that I would not typically come out with him at the first uh, get-go. Yeah. The first full poem in the book is The Village Ant, and the words are, wake up, 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 wake up. That's exactly how to read it. That's right. And then the next one is The Bomb, Here I Go, Down Below, Here I Go, Down Below, Who Sent Me, I Don't Know, Here I Go. Down That's right. I saw. I noticed that bomb. I said it's a big old bomb, so it's not going to really have much to say. Mm. And it's, it's a pretty heavy bomb, and it just all it does is kind of, you know, maybe maybe juggle around a little bit, and then it just goes down, and it, and it's, it has one point, and it's going down, and it's, and you know, who sent me? You know, the, yeah. the bomb can't can't figure that out. That's for sure, but the bomb can see where it's going a bit, and uh, it's kind of it's kind of a sad bomb, you know. It's going to destroy, doesn't know its origins, and it, know, it knows it cannot stop its descent. So I enjoyed bringing that out of that bomb. I couldn't have said that with any other character. For this other collection that I'm holding, 187, good number, poetic number, Reasons Mexicanos Can't Cross the Border. Some poems are in Spanish. Self-assessment, are you as good a poet in Spanish as in English? <laughs> I'm a different kind of poet in Spanish. In English, um, I play more with structure and, and syntax and cejuras. Choreographically, I'm, I'm kind of, I kind of enjoy English for that. In Spanish, it's more like dream language. I get into this dream language because you have so many uh, tenses in Spanish. You know, you have like 10, 12 tenses that you can play with at any time. Within one sentence, you can switch to another tense, and then in the next sentence or mid-sentence, you can switch again. And then the words, you know, the rhyming, Carrara, you know, Carrara, even though that's Italian, I use it in Spanish. Uh, I use it, I've used it in a Spanish, in a poem in Spanish, or Resandera, you know, prayer woman. You know, it sounds pretty good in English. Yeah. You know, the prayer woman. In Spanish, is Resandera. And I go, oh, man, I just love that, you know. It's like a razor blade resandera, you know. So I, I have a lot of cool cool sonics in Spanish that I don't have in English. So I, I, I call on that on those instruments when I write in Spanish. So it's a, if it's better, maybe it's better in Spanish and its own on the musically. And in English, it's probably better in, uh, in architecture and in syntax. So as the Poet Laureate, you're also an ambassador between, I think, the public and the world of poetry. And this is, uh, we're living in this year, a centenary of two great poems. One is T.S. Eliot's The Love Song of J. Alfred Prufrock. What was your relationship to this poem? What I can tell you about um, uh, T.S. Eliot more is his Wasteland poem. Yeah. And people ask me about the Wasteland quite a bit how it can be applied to a society today. And I go, you know, I, I wish you the best. You know, I, I don't know how you could <laughs> apply it. Perhaps we're going through the same thing, or perhaps, 
you're asking too much, you know, from that poem. Uh, it's hard to demand things from poems uh, and attempt to, um, you know, pour them into what's really going on, even though it's possible. One thing I did note about the two poems I mentioned is having their 100th anniversary, Proof Rock and The Road Not Taken. They're both, I think, about, or they're appealing, they have mass appeal. People like The Road Not Taken because it's a fairly simple message, although people seem to have got it wrong. But it (sighs) is about order a little bit in a chaotic world, a walk in the woods. That's a reassuring notion. And Proof Rock, of course, measures his life in coffee spoons. And it's sort of about creating a little bit of understandable, recognizable order. Whereas so many of your poems, maybe not one in particular or in isolation, but your collections add up to a point that you seem to be trying to make is there's so much going on all at once, (laughs) right? And it's about how the world is in disorder and the bomb has a perspective and the ant has a perspective. And what we're really talking about, the only thing you'll read about this in the news is the Janjaweed and the people. I guess it's a way that in each case, you and Frost and, and Elliot both, uh, looked at the world and processed it and you decided to uh, spit out some different takes on things. Different takes, you know, uh, right? Uh, chaos and order, uh, uh, sacred and the profane, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the axis of the of the cosmos and uh, finding a structure and a realm of uh, anti-structure. One of the uh, early scholars in, in, Ch- in Chinese literature uh, ancient scholars in Chinese literature, he said that the, one of the five delights of literature is to task the void. And I go, oh man, okay, uh, th- this is going to be tough to crack. <laughs> Tasking the void, you know, uh, the void, emptiness, con- uh, our, uh, the fact that we're connected to everything. It's like atomic structures. Nothing is really is separate. We're kind of swim. We're kind of swimming, and 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 a never-ending and infinite universe. Of atomic structures, so so that is the void because nothing is solid. Nothing is. Uh, there's no form that you can really hold on to because it has no boundaries, really. Uh, so, so what's the task? The task uh, to task the void. So, how does literature do that? That to me is a is a is a fabulous question, and it's it's hard to get to that one if I just keep on talking about day to day events. But maybe I am doing that in talking about day to, day-to-day events. Right. I guess some people get through the day by saying, I'm not going to think about it. But tasking the void means it's the task of the poet to not give you an answer, but at yeah. least say, engage with it and maybe yes. become comfortable with it. And that's yes. all that we could do. Raise those questions yes. and realize this interconnectivity and maybe this overwhelming or anxiety-producing feeling Unless you, you know, unless the poet, the good poet, uh, asks you to engage with it on a level where it's at least comprehensible. You know, I think I think you just hit it. You, you, you're a Zen monk. I think you just hit <laughs> it. It is to be comfortable with it. Juan Felipe Herrera is the Tomas Rivera Endowed Chair of Creative Writing at the University of California. He is the Poet Laureate of the United States. He is an expert on the subject of the Sisyphean rubber band. <laughs> Thank you, Juan Felipe. <laughs> Thank you so much. The Gist is brought to you by The Message, a new podcast series from GE Podcast Theater. Hi, Nikki Tomlin here, and I'm the host of The Message. I'm going to take you into an elite cryptography think tank and check it out. 
Their top project right now is to decode a highly classified radio transmission from the 1940s. Have you listened to it yet? Not yet. Uh, we're having a discussion about that. But if I offered you the chance to listen to it right now... Uh, sounds like a no. Well, we don't really know what it is. Voices, music, breathing. But, you know, I'm not going to mess with that thing. To sum it up, extraterrestrials. Subscribe to The Message on iTunes. And now the spiel, exhuming McCarthy. Speaker of the House doesn't want the job. What a headache dealing with the rabid mob. It turns out that members of the House Freedom Caucus simply cannot stand the niceties of procedure and comedy that stand in the way of their agenda. For instance, the filibuster. They look at the fact that 41 senators can upend the will of 59 other senators, and it drives this group crazy. It drives crazy this group of 40 or so representatives, so they are upending the will of the other 207 representatives. See how that's fair? The Freedom Caucus, because freedom isn't free, but it is dumb. You know what? Maybe the Freedom Caucus isn't wrong. Maybe they're not wrong. Maybe we just don't understand them. So I went on a quest to understand the Freedom Caucus. So I want to disclose a couple things. The Tea Party-backed Freedom Caucus, I think they are wrong on policy grounds. Everything they want, as far as I can tell, is different from everything I think is good for America. They want to defund Planned Parenthood. They want to eliminate the Import-Export Bank. They want to overturn Obamacare. I want the exact opposite things on all those issues. So those are the issues. But what about the tactics? Because if I agreed with the Freedom Caucus on the issues, maybe I'd agree with them on the tactics. And it seems that they're very much criticized for their tactics, for causing this chaos. So the media, meaning the mainstream media or the lamestream media or the tamestream media, that's what I'm going to call them, the tamestream media, the tamestream media is pretty comfortable editorializing about tactics, right? They talk about the disarray and the chaos and how this is an unrulable minority. And, you know, I'll concede that those things seem fairly indisputable. But the tamestream media will not go that extra step and will not say the Export-Import Bank, it's boring, but it's an okay thing, saves jobs. They will not say that Obamacare is the law of the land, give it up, guys. Yes, editorialists will say it. It will be implied by criticizing the tactics who believe most strongly in tearing up Obamacare. But on the issues, the tame stream media is open-minded, is fair. You have your say, he has his say, she has her say. On the tactics, they diagnose chaos. And they say things like the House GOP is holding its breath or taking its ball and going home. Now, let me ask you, if the underlying issues were issues that the tame stream media more or less agreed with, would we say holding their breath or taking their ball and going home or, or wasting time in the face of reality? Or would we call them courageous? Would we maybe say their stands were quixotic but brave? Would the phrases be so harsh? Let's think about Wendy Davis. Is Wendy Davis filibustering as she did for abortion rights in Texas? Was Wendy Davis pilloried? 
or was she held up as a hero, pretty much celebrated by the tame stream media as someone who stuck to her guns, as someone with conviction? I think she was celebrated. I think she was pretty much hoisted on a pedestal, a pedestal she used to run for governor, which, of course, also proved to be a quixotic race she couldn't win. I'm trying to get into the mindset of the Freedom Caucus members. So we talk about the 40 Freedom Caucus members, the 40 or so Freedom Caucus members. I mean, these people are pretty much the most important politicians in America today. They've made themselves that. We don't even know the exact count. I mean, yesterday, Roll Call reported that one of their members left. It was Reed Ribble, Republican from Wisconsin. Perhaps he wanted to join the Scooby-Doo Caucus, who lured him with cries of, Reed Ribble, Rover Rear. Tom McClintock also left the caucus. We don't have an exact count. We know there's about 40. We know that they're enough to cause a headache for anyone who's trying to get the job of Speaker of the House. So I'm trying to understand this ill-defined group, and I lit upon an analogy. So what issue am I essentially a fundamentalist on? Where do I think of compromise as surrender? Is it bank reform? Is it prison reform? Is it tax reform? No, it's college football reform. I want a playoff. A few years ago, it was only bowls. And if I were a guy in that room at that time, a stakeholder, during the days of no playoffs and only bowl games, I'd be pretty pissed off. I would think the rate of change was glacial to non-existent. I'd want to totally upend the system. I'd be extremely suspicious of the other people in the room who used caution and counseled me to be patient. I'd notice that their financial interests were on on the side of inertia, and I would be extremely gleeful whenever any chaos, whenever any uncertainty was injected into the system. I'd say, ha ha, egg on your face, this whole thing has got to change. Now, of course, the Poulon Weed Eater Bowl isn't exactly replacing Obamacare. For one, Western Michigan isn't favored by foreign Obamacare, but I understand the idea of fundamentalism. By putting myself in this position, someone who really wanted reform and wasn't getting reform, and the thing standing in the place of reform wasn't anything that was written in the Constitution or wasn't anything except something that was man-made. I mean, it's things like the filibuster. The filibuster dates to 1917, right? The cloture rule that ties the Senate in a knot. In 1917, one of the leading causes of death in the United States was contaminated drinking water. Thomas Jefferson said the tree of liberty must be refreshed from time to time with the blood of patriots and tyrants. The Freedom Caucus isn't even calling for that. It's calling for rewriting some rules that aren't in the Constitution that are man-made to do the job that they were elected to do. I actually don't fault them so much on procedure. I fault them for their underlying issues. So it seems today that the House might be facing a death by a thousand cuts, but I think we're bemoaning too much the chaos or maybe celebrating too much the supposed crack-up and not paying enough attention to the underlying deeply held convictions. We should ponder them. We should consider them. We should respect them. We should honor them. And then and only then will we truly understand the reasons why the Republicans are driving themselves over a cliff towards freedom to deadly rock laden explosion inducing fireball scene from three counties away. Freedom. And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi played with the Moroccan countrywide talking cure trio. Just executive producer Andy Bowers was once a member of the Algerian transnational monologue players. Really player, you know, monologue. The gist, you might know us better as the Eritrean national screaming at your neighbor who vacuums at midnight experience. 
But in all honesty, it was better not to have experienced it. Um Peru, de Peru, du Peru. No show on Monday to honor Columbus and the fact that schools are off and that I'll be flying. So a, a trio of honorings. But thanks for listening.